the unenviable task today of talking to you about hell. And the reason it's unenviable, one is this is public speaking, and for most Americans, that's their number one fear. So pretty much none of you want to be up here today, just about, you know, talking to a crowd of people at all. But second, we're talking about hell, which is uh, an extremely unpopular idea in Christianity. Uh, we love talking about heaven. Last week, we talked about heaven. We had a table up here. We talked about who's going to be in heaven. We could probably do, you know, 10 more weeks of that, and people love it. But to talk about the other side of that, what hell is, what it's about, where, why, uh, why hell, or why does that exist, that's a really unpopular I, idea. But to be honest with you, as I've been studying this, looking into it for today's message, I was pretty excited to talk about it. Um, not because I'm like some sadist, sadist who wants to like um, inflict pain on people, or I like, or I like the idea of suffering, or anything like that. Um, and not because I'm like your granddaddy's old hellfire and brimstone preacher, and I just want to like bring the heat and like, like you know, have people like in tears and like a, none of that. Like if you know me, if you've heard me for any any time before, you know that's like not my my jam. Um, really, I look forward to it because. I think this idea is really important to understand, and I think if we do understand it, we don't talk about it a lot, but if we do understand hell, I think it teaches us a lot about our own hearts, it teaches us about peace, and it teaches, about, teaches us about the love of God. Now, already that probably sounds crazy, because most people's main objection to hell is that it doesn't sound ever so loving. Like, if I'm God, why am I damning people to hell for eternity, to fire and, and pain and all that? Like, I love people. That doesn't seem like a very loving thing. If I was God, I wouldn't do that. I would do like the more nice and the loving thing. And so the whole idea that hell teaches us something about the love of God is weird to us. How, how is hell and God's love even compatible? So I want to dig into that a bit this morning. And we're going to do it by looking at something Jesus taught. What may surprise you is that if you read the Bible, you'll find out that the guy who talks about hell more than anybody else is Jesus himself. Which is weird because our, our stereotype of the Bible is that the Old Testament, where God is dealing with Moses and the Pharaohs and Abraham and, and Noah and the flood and all that, our, our stereotype is that God is an angry God. Ooh, he's an angry elf. You know, when we think about the Old Testament God, like, man, why he's so uptight. And then the New Testament God is Jesus, right? And he's like uh, a hippie, sort of sandal-wearing, man, we just got to all love each other kind of guy. And we're like, oh, okay, so I, I like the New Testament God. He's all loving the Old, but, but here's the reality. Jesus is the one who talks about hell. He's the one who ups the stakes there and says, no, this is a real thing, and, and you need to, to realize it and, and deal with it. So I'm going to look at a, a parable that Jesus taught, and understand when we look at a parable, we're not looking at a story about something that actually happened. We, this is a story that Jesus told, and he, it was an illustration he gave to make a point, and it makes several points about what hell is that I think are helpful to us. So it's in Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can look there. We'll also put it up on the screen. Jesus tells this parable, and it's, it says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came out and licked his sores. All right, two characters at the beginning of this parable. There's a rich man, and here's what we know about him. He wears purple, so he's fabulous. You know, he's just like, wow, this guy wears purple. Interesting, right? Well, for us, we, we read that and we're like, that's a... Uh, a weird detail to throw in there, that the rich man wears purple. Um, but in the first century, here's what you need to understand. Purple dye in clothing is expensive. 
And so the only way you wear purple is if you've got a lot of money. And so uh, when people heard Jesus say, there was a rich man who wears purple, everyone's going, oh yeah. Like, purple is a sign of, I'm making bank, y'all. Like, I got, I got lots of money. That's what people would have heard when Jesus says, this guy wears purple. And then the other thing it says is that he feasted sumptuously every day. This guy has steak whenever he wants it. He eats good whenever he wants. This is the picture we're getting is this rich man. Things are good for him. It's a life of luxury. There's another guy in the story named Lazarus. This is the only time in Jesus' parables that he actually names somebody in the story. He names this guy. This guy's name's Lazarus. And Lazarus is the opposite of the rich man. The rich man's living in the palace. Lazarus is like kneeling by the palace gate hoping to get some crumbs or basically a, a, a beggar at the gate. And, and uh, he's trying to, to get something from the rich man, hopefully, or whatever. But his life is bad. He's got sores on his body. And it even says that the dogs come and lick this guy's sores. It's kind of gross. So there's an incredible contrast between these two people. Well, they die, and look what happens. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. All right. Lazarus goes to heaven, goes to Abraham's side is the way he's carried by the angels to heaven. The rich man goes somewhere else, and he says he's in Hades. Now, there's two words that Jesus will use to describe hell. One is Hades, which in the Greek culture, of, of the larger culture around the Jews, the, the Greek idea of Hades is like, you may have heard of like the river Styx, and, and this idea of like this, pla- this place of damnation of souls and darkness and, and evil and all that. There's that kind of idea of what hell is, and Jesus uses that word. The other word Jesus uses for hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is an actual, real, literal place near Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem's, the old city of David is on the side of a hill, and then at the top of the hill, there's this kind of this plateau up there, right? And, and that's where modern-day old city Jerusalem is, right there on top of that hill. And the Temple Mount there is and everything, and it's, it's, a, it's a very incredible space. Um, but uh, because it's on the top of a hill, around it are valleys. There's all these valleys around, around the city of Jerusalem. And one of them is the Valley of Gehenna. Now, in Israel history, uh, King Ahaz, who was king of Israel years before that, he sacrificed his own son in the valley of Gehenna because he was worshiping a pagan god. His grandson Manasseh also did that as part of the worship of this pagan god. So the place in the Jews' mind was already looked at, the valley of Gehenna was looked at as a place that's unclean, cursed, just a, 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 a miserable place. And in Jesus' day, not only was it that, sort of symbolically, it was that literally because it was kind of the trash heap of Jerusalem. Anytime they would sacrifice an animal for the, for the worship, they would put the carcass over there, and there'd be uh, wild dogs kind of roaming through there, and there's like the places on fire a lot of the time. So Gehenna is synonymous with torment, pain, suffering, um, fire, darkness. Like it's, it's a bad place. And, and so when Jesus uses that word, people would also go, oh, Gehenna, like he's describing something that's like that. That's really like an awful awful spot. And, and so Jesus' parable reinforces the idea that Gehenna is a place, or Hades, or, or hell is a place where there is pain, and there's destruction, and there's agony, and there's torment, and there's a waste. There's just, it's a place 
of, of waste and, and wasted lives go there. Um, now the crowd, when they're hearing this parable, probably heard of the rich man, and they're, they're like, oh, I want to be like him. And they hear about the poor man, they're like, I don't want to be like him. And then one goes to heaven, the other one goes to hell, and they're like, wait a second, this is kind of messing with my theology here. Like, I thought the rich man's like the good guy, doesn't he get to go to heaven? And so Jesus anticipates their objections, and listen to what he says in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There's a couple important ideas about hell expressed here. First of all is, uh, is this idea that hell is a punishment for how people live their lives. Like, there's a connection there. It's not just like an arbitrary, you die, and then something, well, I don't know, what do you think? It's not like the sorting hat in Hogwarts, like, hey, by the way, Slytherin, sorry. No, it's, it, it, that's a nerdy joke right there. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's reward or punishment, uh, the trajectory of your life. And, and this guy, his trajectory of his life was not towards God, it was away from God, and that extends out through eternity into a place called hell. Um, the rich man already had his best life now. The, the, the Abraham says it. He's like, no, you had good things in life. And, it, and it's not, you don't go to hell because you had good things in life. You, you're in hell because that's all your heart ever really wanted. At the end of the day, the most important thing to you was wealth and luxury and, and all of that good stuff. And, and Abraham says, representing God here, Abraham says, you got what you wanted. What you wanted was luxury. You got it. And so you don't get to be here. And, 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 and so there's, there's sort of that point that is made there. And then the second point he makes is that there's a great chasm. There's a distance between heaven and hell, and we're not crossing over from one side to another. No matter what happened to Robin Williams in that What Dreams May Come movie, you don't, like, get into heaven and then go, oh, I'm going to go over to hell and go see if I can hang out with some people. Like, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. There's a, there's a separation there between God and, and hell. Let's continue on. Verse uh, 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I, I think this parable teaches us a couple things about hell that are important. Number one, hell, hell should teach us something about our own hearts. Hell should teach us something about our own hearts. This guy built his life on his riches. What did he love the most at the end of the day? His stuff. Now, that isn't to say he wasn't a religious man. Don't read this and think, well, the rich guy, maybe he's like some sort of atheist, agnostic, heartless, cruel, you know, Wall Street banker, terrible, whatever you want to say. Like, we, we read all these things, think he's this pagan thing, you know, he's this bad dude. He may not be that at all. In fact, he might be devout, he might pray, he might give money to the synagogue, he might do these things. But Jesus has the ability to look into hearts in a way that we can't. And, and, and what, it, what he sees there in this guy's heart is at the end of the day, the guy loves his stuff and his money and his riches, and he relies on that. That's called idolatry over and over through the Bible. I know that's not a popular word we use today, but it's an important one. Anytime you take something 
It could be a good thing. It could be a morally neutral thing. Something, let's say, like money. And you make that, that thing the ultimate thing. That's called idolatry. You take something God gave you to use and you make it God itself. Right? And, and you remove God from the highest place of your life. And that's what this guy has, has done. And he's told by Abraham, look, you got what your heart wanted. What you wanted was stuff and luxury. You got it. And at the end of the day, this guy goes to hell because he didn't really want heaven. His heart just wasn't there. He didn't want God. Now, this is uncomfortable for me for lots of reasons. It, but what I like to do when I read this parable is go, well, I'm not rich, so I guess I'm good. Like, uh, you know, I'm not living my best life now. I have struggles, so I guess I'm good. But there's lots of problems with that. One, I am rich in the history of the world, and even in the globe today of the percentage of income makers or whatever. So there's that. I can be like, well, I'm American middle class. It doesn't matter, like historically, right? So there's a problem. But the other thing is, to think it's about being rich or not misses the point. The point is about what you trust and what you value and where your heart is. This guy's heart wasn't right. He had pride that was getting in the way. In fact, you can see that by what he says. He feels entitled. Notice that he's in hell. He sees Lazarus, who used to beg at his gate. He sees him in heaven. And what does he say? Abraham, would you send the servant guy down here to bring me some water? Also, can you work on the temperature in here? Could, is there climate control? Yes, I'd like water, please. Uh, sparkling, not still. You know, like... What's going on? He, he still thinks, in hell, he still thinks he's entitled to something. He still thinks he's better than. That's the problem. It's not that he was wealthy. That's not the issue. It's that he trusted that. It's because it was, it was a pride problem. It was a heart problem. If we build our identity and our worth on something other than God, it's going to be a problem long term. And this is a relevant topic because identity is such a big deal in our culture. We are uh, maybe have enough luxury or enough wealth or something in American culture that we can sit around and think about all these questions of identity because we're not like hunting for food tonight. So we can have all these issues of identity and what we're doing is we're trotting out all sorts of identities upon which to build our lives. Uh, my identity is built on how much money I make and, and how important I am. My identity is built on what, where I went to school or where my kids are going to go to school. My identity is built on how much power I've accumulated. My identity is built on these sexual preferences. My identity is built on my religion. We do it all over the place. We build our identity on every single thing we can find except God. Because that feels nebulous to us. It feels uncomfortable. What if he lets us down? We have all these issues. But we build our identity on so many things. And we need to really be looking at our own hearts and say, what am I building my life on? What's really going on here? Because here's the truth. I can't judge your heart or your friend's heart or your grandma's heart or this other person that you know. That is above my pay grade. It is not my position. I can look at the fruit of your life and my life and say, this is what you do. I don't know, you know, but I don't know what's going on inside. And the scripture reinforces that. It says, man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. I can't see your heart and judge it accurately. I can hardly do that for my own. So if you come to me and say, is this person in heaven or hell? I go, that's not my job. Like I, that's not my role, right? I can point us to God and what the scripture says and all that. 
what I want you to see in this, and, and what I've wrestled with as I've been teaching this and studying for this and preparing this, and what I hope you wrestle with is you've got to look at your own heart. The idea uh, that there is hell should get us to really pause and consider, what am I doing with my life? Where have I built my identity? And am I pursuing after God, or am I pursuing every other little trinket that our culture has to offer? Is my identity built on God? Because hell is real, and real people will actually go there. Why will people go to hell? Because they want to. Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Because, and the reason that doesn't make sense to us is because when we think of hell, we think of Dante's Inferno, right? We think fire, darkness, uh, pain. Uh, we think of like a little pointy devil, pointy-headed devil guy with a pitchfork, sort of that cartoonish caricature, like all the medieval paintings of the souls writhing in anguish, that, that kind of thing. That's what we, we think of as hell, and we think, wait, people don't want to go there. Who would, who would want to go there? That doesn't make any sense at all. But what Scripture teaches is that people don't want to be with God. That's the reality, and God will give them what they want. C.S. Lewis described hell. He said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. It is God looking at you and saying, okay, if that's what you want, if you don't want me, you won't have me. Lewis also says, hell is locked from the inside. And I think you actually see this in the parable. Notice the rich man in hell doesn't look up at Lazarus and Abraham in heaven and say, can I come up there? Wouldn't that be the obvious? Like, oh no, I really want to be up there. No. He doesn't say that at all. He says, would you send someone down here to help me? To like bring me some water, to like make it a little better for me. There's not a desire to be with God. And if your desire is not to know God, not to love him, not to follow him, not to serve him, if that's not even registering for you, man, you need to consider where that, where that life's going to end up. It's very possible that that ends in, in, in separation from, from God. You need to look at your heart and say, what do I really want? Because the truth is eventually you'll have it. So, that's number one. Number two, believing in hell can actually bring us peace here and now. Now, that's an interesting concept. Um, I, I've gotten into the history of World War I over the last six months or so, listening, reading, listening to podcasts, reading about it. Um, and we're now in the 100th anniversary of World War I, 1914 to 1918. So here we are in 2017, 100th anniversary. And um, I had the opportunity last month when I was off to go to Belgium, and we went to the western edge of Belgium to what was in World War I, the Western Front, you may have heard of that, and the, the, there's a town there on the Western Front of Belgium called Ypres, and Ypres was a town that was totally leveled in World War I, and the whole area around it, it was basically like a peninsula of land that was surrounded by the German forces, and there's all these sort of square miles where uh, it's just a killing field. They could shoot right across. And in that, in that acreage there, 8 million artillery shells fell over the course of the four years there. And it was incredible. In fact, the third battle of Ypres is called Passchendaele. If you ever read up on that, it happened 100 years ago this month. It was basically July 31st to November of 1917. You read up on that, it is the most hellish environment I have ever heard of on earth as I, as I looked into this. And, I, and it surprised me, like, how come... I don't remember this from school or whatever. I took a picture of Ypres area in the countryside, and that, that's the picture I took. It's pretty nice, right? Like, oh, that's, that's like, there's like a cow off on the, this is like a pretty countryside. This is what it looked like in 1917. Every tree is turned to twigs. Every piece of vegetation is gone. 
All of the earth has been churned up. In August of 1917, it rained every day but three, and all of that dirt turned to something that was the consistency of porridge. And many men died because they accidentally got their foot caught in the mud, and they couldn't get it out, and they couldn't be pulled out. And there are plenty of stories of men sinking into the mud over the course of days, like the earth just swallowing them back up. That's why they have those boards across so that they don't trip and, and sink. That's what we do to people. World War I took 17 million casualties. It's hard to wrap your head around a number that, that big. Of people getting limbs blown off. Mustard gas, gassing people. People getting sucked back into the earth. Artillery fire, machine guns, flamethrowers, barbed wire. All of this stuff. We did this to human beings. By the millions. And then they called a truce at the end, the armistice in 1918. Like, all right, we're done with this. And 20 years later, not long, 20 years later, a guy, Hitler, says, let's do it again. Hitler was there at Ypres. He fought in that battle. He saw it firsthand. And, he's, and he goes, we should pick this back up and try again. Now you go, well, Hitler's crazy. He's like a lot of people in the history of the world who believe they've been done wrong, and the response to you did me wrong is I'm going to come back at you even harder. And the cycle of violence continues, and it continues. And believe it or not, if we would grasp this idea of hell, it can actually help with that. Because if we believe in hell, what we're saying is, God will judge, not me. I don't have to play judge, jury, and executioner of everyone in my life. Personally, this person did me wrong. They abused me. They, they, they hurt me. I... If, if, we, if I believe in hell, I'm going to have to go, you know, God will take care of that long term. God's going to deal with that person. If I don't believe in hell, then I'm going to go, I'm going to get my vengeance on that person. That's true of people. That's true of entire nations. Our hope for peace rests in the fact that we believe that God is actually the ultimate judge and, and will judge people for what they do. That's the only way to stop the cycle of violence is to realize we don't have to retaliate. In fact, um, Miroslav Volf is a, is a um, well, actually, let me, let me just read, I'll, I'll tell you that in a second. Let me, let me just read you this, this verse and so you get a sense of it. Verse 25, Abraham said, this is go back to the parable. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. When you read that, I mean, you don't get tone, right? But when you read that, do you think that Abraham, representing God here, do you think he's looking down at this rich man and is, like, irritated with him? You got what's coming to you, sucker. Do you read that in there? I don't, especially because he starts with a Greek word that's translated here as child, also son. All the commentators will tell you this. When God speaks to this guy in hell, he's speaking from a place of compassion. Son, hey, you... you this is what you wanted, my child. There's, there's a sympathy there. And so when we think of those who have done wrong to us, or we think of hell, or we think of you know, violence and, and all of these things, um, and we think of people being ultimately being judged and eternally separated from God, there should be no, nothing haughty in us. There's nothing in us that's like, well, I found God. That's good, lucky for me. Sucks for you. Sorry you're going to hell. There's no, even to the people that you don't like, there should be a sense in us that is, we have tears in our eyes. That people you know and love might be eternally separated from God. That should move you to tears, not to move you to any sense of pride of, like, you're so awesome or anything like that. We should be moved to tears. The belief in hell can bring about peace on some level. Miroslav Volf, that I was just telling you about, he, uh, he witnessed 
the violence and the genocide in the Balkans in the 1990s. And he wrote a book about it, and, and he really addresses this idea that, um, you know, people are c- kind of going to this like, well, you know, there's violence, but we should just lay down arms. We should not be violent. We should, you know, give peace a chance. Let's just love each other. Love, not war. You know, that kind of idea. And he speaks into that idea in, in a book that he wrote. He speaks into that idea about from his firsthand witness of what happened in the Balkans. And listen to what he says. It's a little dense, but let's, let's get into it. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it'll invariably die. And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What is he saying? He's saying this idea that we should give peace a chance, that someone comes in and burns your village. If you turn to someone who's had their village burned and their family destroyed and all that, and you say, hey, don't pick up the gun, don't pick up the sword, because we just need to love, and if you would just love, we'll be fine. That's not going to work. That won't work. People will pick up the sword, and they'll pick up the gun. There are horrors and atrocities and evils in the world that people will respond to. And he says the only way out is to believe that God is going to judge them. That God will, will judge them for what they have done and so that you do not have to be the executioner. You do not have to be God's hammer. All of our moralizing about how violence never solves anything, he says, won't work. The only way is to believe in God's ultimate justice. So I believe God can actually bring us peace um, interpersonally with people who have done us wrong, a sense of peace for us that we, we say God will deal with that. And on a large scale, tribes and, and nations. And then last thing, Hell teaches us something about the love of God. And maybe that's the hardest one to swallow out of all of this. Hell teaches us something about the love of God. So often we act out of fear. And that's true in a lot of areas of life. And it's certainly true as we think about hell. Because a lot of people will hear this and they'll go, well, I don't want to go to hell. That sounds awful. So maybe I'll do the God thing. Do I have to like sign up? Do I like, what do I do? Do I get baptized? Do I like check a box on a card? Do I pray a prayer? Do I give money at the church? Like, whatever I need to do that gets me out of hell, that's good. I'll do that. But here's the problem. That, that doesn't really reform you or change you from the inside out. Fear doesn't really do that. Fear will, is good in a short term to motivate you to do a few things. But that's not going to stick long term. And really, if what you're doing is saying, I'm scared of hell, I need Jesus to be my fire insurance, and I'm just going to sign up for that, and if I sign up, I'm, I sign my papers and I'm good, what we're basically trying to do is manipulate the system. I don't really, because at, at the end of that day, you don't really want God either. You're not, you're not following him or desire to be in a loving relationship with him. You just want him for what he can do for you. And God can see through that. That's, you can see what's really going on there. And so we have to move beyond fear and really look at the idea of love. Um, we, we, uh, we have to say, okay, Hell is actually an extension or an expression of the love of God. Now, how, how does that even make sense? Well, Jesus describes his mission on earth and why he was sent to earth in John chapter 3. And John 3.16 is maybe the most famous verse in the entire Bible. I'm going to read it to you here in a second. And you'll say, oh, I've heard of that before, even if you didn't grow up in church at all. 
But I, I want you to understand verse 17 that comes right after it also about why Jesus came. Because he didn't come to earth to tell everybody they're going to hell. That wasn't the point. Listen to what it says, John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What's that telling us? Man, out of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus. And Jesus didn't show up to say, you're all going to hell. Get it right, folks. You're going to hell. That's not what he was here for. He warns us, sure. But what he came to do was to die on our behalf. He, he, he didn't come to judge. He came to bear judgment on behalf of his enemies. He came because you and I sin. We break things. We break relationships. We hurt people. And that causes a rift between us and other people and us and God. And Jesus came to take all of those sins and have them nailed to him to be hung on a cross in Jerusalem on a Friday to die for our sins. That's why he came to make a way for us to be in a relationship with God eternally. God loves us so much. And rather than pretend like our sin is nothing, like we didn't burn it down with other people or, or slaughter the innocent or anything like that, rather than, rather than pretend like, oh, you know what, my kids are always messed up, it's no big deal. No, he takes it seriously and there's justice there, but he brings that justice down on Jesus so that we would not have to bear the full brunt of it because he loves us. Do you see how much... Of a, of, a, of a debt. We, you see how much we owe him because of how much we're loved? Think of it this way. I've heard several preachers use this illustration. It makes sense. Let's say, a, let's say somebody came over your house while you were not home. Your, one of your buddies came over and you, you, know, you walk on in. They're like eating your chips or whatever. And uh, you see them later. They're like, oh yeah, I was at your house the other day. You weren't there. I just hung out for a little bit. He said, uh, but while I was there, um, some bills came, a bill came in the mail and I just went ahead and paid it. So you don't have to worry about it. All right, so how grateful are you to that friend about the bill? I guess the answer to that is, which bill was it and how much was it? Because if they paid like postage due 42 cents, you'd be like, cool, thanks. Thanks for doing that. What if they paid back your school loan? Oh, now it gets real. Oh, whoa. What if, what if, you, what if you got a bill while you are out and it was like 10 years of back taxes that you owed and your friend like stroked a check? Man, that's powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff. I guess how you thank the person, whether you high-five them or fall down on your knees and grab their ankles or hug them or kiss them or whatever, it just depends on how much they paid on your behalf. And what I want to tell you is that Jesus paid on your behalf. He, he paid the debt that he didn't know. He paid one that we owed. And he loved us so much that he died on a cross for us. In fact... The belief in hell is important here. When Jesus is on the cross, we, we talked about this close back near Easter. When Jesus was on the cross, he said seven things on the cross. The first and the last thing he said, he starts off by saying, Father, Father, forgive them. Uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He speaks of his heavenly Father in very familial terms. He says, Father. Right in the middle when Jesus is on the cross, he doesn't say, Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not, he's not talking all family, buddy-buddy with God anymore. It's distant. And all the commentators will tell you this. Jesus goes to hell in that moment, descends into hell. The, 
not just physical pain of the cross, not just emotional pain and anguish, but spiritual pain. Jesus experiences the separation from God and says, well, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is overwhelming. He experiences that. He goes to hell for us. So I think you, you have to believe in hell if you're going to understand how much God loves you and what he was willing to endure uh, for you. Hell helps us come to grips with our own hearts. It gives us the possibility of peace, and it shows us how much that we're loved. Now, we talked about heaven last week. If you missed that, go back and listen to it online. Talked about hell this week. The next logical question is, yeah, but so what? Like, what am I supposed to do with all that? I mean, it's interesting, but what am I going to do? We're going to finish up next week, and we're going to talk about that. How do we live in light of these realities? What should we be doing in the, in the day-to-day because of this whole cosmic scheme of where life is going? Um, I, I'm excited to talk to you about that. Make sure you come back next week, and let's kind of put a bow on all this and, and finish it out. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, an unpopular teaching, but um, a necessary one for us to kind of wrap our heads around and to try to understand. Um, God, I, I pray that we are not the kind of people who shy away from the reality of hell um, because it's uncool or doesn't play well in, in, in polling data, does not play well in the American mind. Um, God, I, I pray that we embrace, embrace the tough stuff that, um, that is real, that is... Uh, difficult to wrap our heads around, and that we trust you even though we don't, uh, we don't always get to figure out how it all works out perfectly. We trust you that you are good, that you love us, and that you have a plan to be loving and just. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.